WBUR Podcasts, Boston. Recently, I was lucky enough to meet a kindred spirit, another journalist who shares my fascination with our species' infinite capacity for excess. I love the sort of, like, hedonistic side of people. I love people who um, just accidentally step a little bit too far over the line. That's Paige Blankenbuehler. She writes and edits for High Country News, an independent magazine that covers the Western United States. And the story we're telling today was originally reported out by her. Unlike me, Paige gravitates towards conflict. If I had to define a beat for myself, I think I'm really drawn to stories where wild people and wild things collide and are sort of at odds with one another. For decades, one considerable source of that tension has been endangered species and the burly federal law that protects them. The northern spotted owl is synonymous with lost livelihoods, and for many... There's a big fight going on over grizzly bears at Yellowstone National Park. A bird the size of a chicken may block a variety of business operations. The bird is the greater sage grouse. The Endangered Species Act was passed in 1973. It's one of the most powerful conservation laws in the world. Still, there are casualties. Accidents happen. Mistakes are made. Page told me about a hunter in Utah who shot and killed a then-endangered gray wolf a few years ago, claiming he thought it was a coyote. There's no charge whatsoever. There's no sentence. Um, So this hunter, you know, kind of, you know, is uh, given the benefit of the doubt. Like, okay, you didn't mean to. Experts told me this kind of thing happens all the time. You can't be convicted of a crime under the ESA unless prosecutors can prove you knew you were harming a protected species. But once in a blue moon, there's a violation considered so egregious, the federal government decides to send a strong signal, punish the guilty. A case page says that really does. Test your commitment to this idea of how much the natural world matters and is it worthy of protection? A few years ago, she wrote about one of those cases in High Country News, and I could not forget it because this case didn't involve a grizzly bear or gray wolf, or some other beloved charismatic megafauna that usually grace the cover of wildlife magazines. Quite the opposite. It's kind of this like bite-sized crime story that um, had a pretty unexpected ending. One starring an obscure species of tiny fish that could go missing forever at any moment. And yes, some hedonistic humans who stepped a little too far over the line and this time suffered some big consequences. Welcome to Last Scene, a show about people, places, and things that have gone missing, and whether or not they can or even should be found. From WBUR, Boston's NPR station, I'm Nora Sachs. This is Episode 5, Belly Up. This bite-sized crime story begins in southwestern Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas, in a moon-like stretch of the Mojave Desert. So dry, just shrubs and desert grasses grow. But in April, it gets a little bit of moisture, enough to set off a super bloom of wildflowers. So it's speckled with 
yellows and reds and purples and blues and it's sandy and sagey and really stark but really beautiful. It was a warm Saturday evening right around that time of year that a trio of young men, all locals, set up camp out there in the middle of nowhere. Maybe it was the desert coming back to life, that intoxicating feeling when spring is in the air, or maybe, just maybe, it was the coconut rum. On this one particular night in April 2016, a group of three guys, you know, were passing around this bottle of Malibu and shooting into the desert. Um, you know, a word that they actually used at the time, I picked this up in, in one of the incident reports, was that they were out there bunny blasting. Bunny blasting is exactly what it sounds like, shooting some poor, unsuspecting jackrabbits. So what happens on a night like this? Things pretty rapidly went downhill. They were really drunk on rum. They were driving around this off-road vehicle and all three of them in it together, you know, Trent, um, one of the men, this this chestnut-haired um, 27-year-old is carrying a shotgun and, and just kind of firing it off at signs. And they're, they're tearing through the Armagosa Valley and Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge. Overflowing with reckless abandon and rugged individualism. They get closer and closer to this really sort of remote unit of Death Valley National Park. Death Valley spans more than 3 million acres along the California-Nevada border. It's the driest and hottest place on the continent. But in this one separate part of the park, natural springs gurgle up to the surface, creating a refuge for dozens of species of flora and fauna found nowhere else on Earth. It's an oasis in a thirsty desert. And it's here that a heavily guarded, forbidden fortress looms on the side of a scrubby hill. And it's called Devil's Hole. It's this, this deep pool inside of this like limestone cavern. And, you know, back in the early 20th century, it was a place that was uh, called the miner's bathtub, you know. So it's, it's this kind of swimming hole, but um, it's since been kind of surrounded by metal fencing and barbed wire and security cameras. And signs warning, restricted area. Keep out. But this inebriated threesome seems determined to break in. First, they ram their off-road vehicle into the fence. Then one dude shoots at the padlocked gate. Unable to open it... They get the, the bright idea to scale the fencing and climb over the barbed wire into this small enclosure um, where there's a tiny opening to this deep aquifer that goes hundreds of feet down. It's sort of this glowing blue hole, honestly. It just, like, radiates out of this desert landscape. Once inside, the guys destroy a surveillance camera or two. One takes a whiz, one vomits. And then one man, the chestnut-haired guy with the shotgun, makes a fateful decision. He staggers his way down the steep boulders, down into the mouth of the sunken cavern, down to the edge of the glowing blue hole. He drops the shotgun, um, he strips off his clothes, and then he slips into this deep, warm water. He didn't know it yet, but that would prove to be his worst mistake of the night.
That one night of reckless abandon back in 2016 was not exactly the first time humans had been seduced by the Caribbean blue warm waters of this beautiful sunken pool. Like Paige said, dusty old miners used to bathe here a century or two ago. It lured cult leader Charles Manson, who believed this was the portal to an underground kingdom. And in the 1970s, it beckoned to Kevin Wilson, who visited with his family when he was a young boy. And I can remember laying down on this observation deck and looking down at Devil's Hole, and it seemed like this strange place. Kevin, who's in his 50s now, isn't a dusty miner or a cult leader. He's the aquatic ecologist for Death Valley National Park and manages the Devil's Hole research program. He's spent his career studying this strange place. And this window into the aquifer, as Kevin likes to call it, is still full of mysteries. For one thing, no one knows how deep this ancient fissure goes. Divers have been down to 436 feet and did not find a bottom. And get this, earthquakes rumbling thousands of miles away have caused huge waves to slosh around inside it. But to scientists like Kevin, what might be most fascinating of all is who dwells in Devil's Hole. Not Satan, at least we don't think, but one of the rarest fish on Earth. An iridescent, bright blue species about the size of your pet goldfish. They'll kind of chase each other and, and you know, kind of playfully run around with, you know, swim around if you're a fish. That puppy-like behavior is where it gets its name, pupfish. Scientists believe that 10,000 years ago or more, one group of pupfish got trapped here, alone in this flooded cave in the middle of the desert. You know, I, I first was intrigued by this fish that lives in an extreme environment. The water's very warm. It's 93 degrees Fahrenheit. There's very low oxygen in the water. Plus very little sunlight and not much food. But over time, they adapt to this extreme environment. Slow down, lose a pelvic fin. Eventually, sort of like Darwin's finches isolated on their islands in the Galapagos, this tiny and very isolated population of tiny fish evolves into a completely unique species. One sustained for all those millennia by a shallow underwater rock shelf. The limestone shelf is covered in algae, and it's the only place these special pupfish feed, and breed. It's about the size of two ping-pong tables. The smallest known habitat for a vertebrate species. Meaning anything with a backbone anywhere on Earth. Along with the bald eagle, the Florida manatee, the Devil's Hole pupfish was one of the very first species to receive federal protection. But in spite of the decades of effort and millions of dollars spent on recovering them, they are still critically endangered. Kevin dons scuba gear and helps count the pupfish twice a year and says fluctuations in their numbers is normal, but he's worried. Since the mid-90s, we've hit a low of 35 observable fish. In the spring of 2013, I turned instantly gray. Their numbers have been well below historical levels for a while now, and scientists aren't sure why. Why aren't we seeing 400 fish in the fall? And why aren't we seeing 200 fish in the spring? And so there isn't a smoking gun. It's most likely a lot of different factors at once. Synergy, not the good kind. Put them all together, it's just not the best ecosystem right now. These primordial desert fish might be teetering on the edge of existence, but they are survivors. And if they can keep hanging on, 
they might have a lot to teach us about surviving climate change and how to live in harsher, hotter environments. Kevin says these pupfish, they could be the canary in the cave. We're studying a system that's already at that, you know, climax of temperature. And then these others are going to come up and we might be able to say, well, we, we could do this, that or the other to preserve these other species from going extinct. But first, the pupfish would have to confront a different kind of menace. On a Monday morning in late spring 2016, Kevin Wilson rolled into his National Park Service office, ready to do some science. Except that when he arrived, one of his staffers was hunched over a computer screen, poring over security camera footage from Devil's Hole over the weekend. And so he went and hit, you know, one of the uh, recordings, and he goes, oh no, Kevin's not going to be happy. In the videos, three men ram, shoot, and scale their way into the fortified enclosure, then stumble around, leaning and swaying. It's funny at first. But then it isn't. Kevin plays the next bit of footage over and over. The view from the underwater pupfish cam. And it's fairly dark. You know, you're submerged in this sort of like dark teal. um, And you see like little bubbles rising up occasionally. And then you see this really pale foot and this tanned calf just plunge into the water. You see it coming from the surface until it um, dramatically like actually steps around on, you know, what you can see in the camera footage is this pretty lush algae covered shelf. Then another pale foot plunges in and suddenly she says, there's this pair of disembodied legs just shuffling around while fish dart out of the way. I was mad, you know, I, I was angry. Why, you know, why would someone do this? I mean, it's obviously closed off. Kevin was also anxious. He didn't know yet if any fish had been harmed. He also had no idea what other dangers could be laying in wait at the crime scene, or if this trespass was some kind of anti-Fed action. Just a few months earlier, the far-right extremist Ammon Bundy led an armed takeover of a national wildlife refuge over in Oregon. It was all over the news, and national parks were on high alert. I call my law enforcement in the park. That would be Ranger Josh Van. Give me one second, they're calling me on the radio. Gulf one, go ahead. Josh is currently stationed at Great Basin National Park, but was working at Death Valley back in 2016, when Kevin rang him up to tell him there was a problem out at Devil's Hole. They'd caught some guys with guns on camera, and they were inside the fence. And... It, it's one of those times where you just kind of sit back and you're like, oh, crap, what is what's going on? And, you know, when the troop of law enforcement officials and scientists got out there, they found shotgun shells, a gate ripped out of the ground, beer cans everywhere. Then when Josh actually gets down into Devil's Hole, there's somebody's underwear over there floating in the water. And let's not forget the big, huge pile of vomit on the ground. Because the smell, nobody can miss that. Basically, the site, which is a national park unit, a national monument, and a wildlife refuge, was trashed. Like there was a party, and no one bothered to clean up afterwards. But on top of the shotgun shells, the briefs, the barf, was something far more serious, also floating on the surface of the water, belly up. There was a dead pupfish found the following day. There was a necropsy performed on that pupfish, trying to determine the cause of death. There were no apparent causes of death, meaning he he wasn't 
stepped on and squished. He was not overweight, not underweight and malnourished. He wasn't old. There was no reasonable cause of why this fish is found dead. The time frame for how long it had been deceased matched with when the skinny dipper tread on the rock shelf. Scientists say it was probably shock. Yes, fish can die of shock. Did he kill the one pupfish? I'm not going to say factually that he did. I believe the evidence points to, and it is reasonable to believe, that he did. Maybe you're thinking, wow, that ranger Josh is being a little melodramatic. The way he talks about that one dead pupfish is kind of what you'd expect from a homicide detective. But at the time of this trespass, approximately 115 Devil's Hole pupfish were left in the wild, total. They're the last of their kind. And it was even scarier to think about all the damage that could have been done. To me, it wasn't about the single dead pupfish. That shelf that he walked across is very small. You know, three or four steps, and you've made it across the entire shelf. That's their entire habitat on the entire face of the planet. That's all they've got. It's the only place they live, the only place they eat, the only place they sleep, the only place they reproduce. And it was at peak breeding season. So... Yes, there's one dead pupfish. How many eggs were crushed? How many pupfish wouldn't be born after that event? That's an unanswerable question. One night of drunken debauchery could have wiped out an entire species. But these tough little fish have faced existential threats before. More on that and the fate of these devil's hole vandals after the break. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Death Valley. It came by the name honestly. If you were watching NBC way back in 1970, you might have heard actor Jack Lemmon narrating a doom and gloom documentary called Timetable for Disaster, zooming in on, you guessed it, our Lilliputian Piscine friends, the Devil's Hole Pupfish. As far as we can ascertain, this is the only motion picture footage ever taken of the pupfish. Unless there's a miracle... It will be the last. Man is about to murder them. The pupfish were cast as a poster child for the conservation movement because of a fight as old as the West itself. Who has a right to water? Back in the 1960s, some alfalfa and cattle ranchers in this arid corner of Nevada started drilling wells to irrigate thousands of acres of cropland. And the groundwater there, it is just one system. So it's, it's taking a straw into one bathtub, whether you know you're tapping into it from here or there. And 
Um, this particular ranch was just a couple miles outside of um, Devil's Hole. This ranch sucked so much water through its straws, the water levels in that thermal pool began to drop dramatically. Remember, the pupfish live and die by how much water is in that hole and how much is covering their precious algae-covered rock shelf. So in a nutshell, the feds ordered the ranchers to stop. The ranchers refused. The feds sued. And battle lines were drawn. Some bumper stickers shouted, save the pupfish. Others, kill the pupfish. One local newspaper editor even threatened to throw the pesticide rotenone in the pool and make the pupfish a moot point. The arguments at the time were like, really, we're going to protect this tiny little fish that no one's heard of over the lives and livelihoods and hardworking ranching families? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, There was a lot of community anger around that. Especially in a sparsely populated place like Nye County, Nevada, in a town like Pahrump. Uh, Pretty much hookers and aliens is what Pahrump is known for. That's Morgan Dillon, calling from the parking lot of the police substation. I'm a detective sergeant with the Nye County Sheriff's Office. Morgan worked on the Devil's Hole case, and he lives in Pahrump, where prostitution is legal, and that top-secret military base, Area 51, is right down the road. Is this why we came out here, Mulder? To look for UFOs? But before all the aliens, the hookers, and lately the influx of retirees, Morgan says Pahrump was a rural farming town in the desert, with the type of politics you might expect. Nye County is very conservative politically, and the most of the economy is based on agriculture and mining and stuff. When it comes to protecting endangered species and their habitat... Any kind of limits on the land frustrates a lot of people who make their living off of it. That's especially true when those limits are being imposed by the federal government in a region where... We have various flavors of uh, anti-government sentiment. Driving around town, Paige says you can spot plenty of yellow Gadsden flags. You know, the ones with the rattlesnake coiled and ready to strike above the words, don't tread on me. And the pupfish were perceived as very much treading on the Western rancher in the 1960s. But in this battle, it was the pupfish who carried the day. In 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court made a call. The federal government's right to maintain water in Devil's Hole for the pupfish and their habitat trumped the water rights of ranchers. This was sort of a precedent-setting case. You know, this was something that the federal government really wanted to throw the book at to crystallize at that moment that, like, species are worthy of protection, even the little ones, even the non-charismatic ones, even those that you had never heard of before. Like, it's important. The era of pupfish bumper stickers is long gone. And right after the attack at Devil's Hole, it was obvious to investigators like Morgan Dillon that the vandals didn't have an agenda. I didn't see any politics in the crime at all. Nonetheless, Page says the 2016 trespassing incident activated an intricate legal enforcement network designed to protect the endangered species and their habitat. And it's not just, you know, the the Measley Park Service and and their understaffed, you know, investigators. You know, this went all the way up to Washington, D.C. And all the way back down to the Nye County Sheriff's Office. (laughs) We were calling it the pupfish murder forever after the media got a hold of it. 
Detective Morgan and Ranger Josh were part of the very intimidating-sounding Scorpion Task Force. They started their investigation by collecting all the unnatural things discarded poolside at Devil's Hole. I mean, you watch CSI on TV and you think everything is going to have evidence on it. You know, fingerprints can be pulled off of a brick, right? No, it can't. They did not find fingerprints on the beer cans or the shotgun shells. They didn't try to pull DNA from the underwear, but did stash it in a case file. Yeah, I had the underwear in my safe for a long time. Next, they put out a Crime Stoppers tip. It's hard to investigate when there's no witnesses, nobody around. It's off of a dirt road that goes from one place in nowhere to another place in nowhere. So we were originally just trying to come up with ideas. In the end, the Scorpion Task Force had something better than ideas. They had surveillance footage. It clearly shows the three suspects' faces and their off-road vehicle, which another detective on their team noticed was something special. A blue Yamaha Rhino with custom modifications. Now, where do you go when you want to find something unique to buy or perhaps get rid of? And there it is. It was posted on Craigslist. When we were able to get that break, that was about as lucky as we could get. The ad and the address led them to Perump, right to the home of suspect number one, Stephen Schwinkendorf. So, yeah, we rode out there, knocked on the door. A tall, youngish guy answers, his arms crossed. Josh asks him if he might have been out near Devil's Hole recently. Uh, yeah, yeah, we went there over the weekend. And at, at that point, I was just like, yes, okay, it's the guy. Um, tell us about your, what would you do out there? Oh, we went bunny blasting. Now I've got a guy who admits to being there, a guy who admits to having a shotgun and, and shooting shotgun shells. And I'm just getting more and more excited. Then Morgan asks him if he and his buddies might have gone for a little swim in that glowing blue 93-degree pool, Devil's Hole. He's like, no. No, he didn't. And now I'm thinking, okay, he knows he's in trouble. He's clamming up. Well, did you guys go inside the fence? Uh, no. No, we didn't. Morgan produces a photograph pulled from the park's security footage. And holds it out to him and says, well, what do you have to say about this? And the guy looks at the picture, and he says, well, well, that's me. That's my buddy Trent. That's my buddy Edgar. Yeah, I guess we did go in there. Jeez, I don't remember that. I had this, like, celebration, like, you've admitted now to being inside there. Josh says the suspect also admitted they'd all been drinking quite a lot. He was polite, cooperative, and rather dumbfounded by the entire ordeal. You know, the whole time, it wasn't really clicking with him exactly how important this was. Schwinkendorf volunteered the names and numbers of the other guys. But by now, the Crime Stoppers tip had gone viral. Word was getting out about the Devil's Hole Vandals. A fish on the endangered species list was killed, and surveillance video shows how it might have happened. Investigators are offering a $5,000 reward to anyone who... You know, everyone's kind of rallying around... The, the save the pupfish kind of idea. Um, this was really viewed as this like egregious crime against wildlife. And suspect number two was feeling the heat. Edgar Reyes admitted to the investigators that he had trespassed, confirmed that the shotgun belonged to him. But he wasn't their main person of interest, the one that would really have to answer for this. That would be drunk guy number three, Trent Sargent, the skinny dipper. 
they wanted to find the skinny dipper because, you know, the skinny dipper killed the pupfish. So um, they were getting nervous that, you know, his friends were going to kind of warn him and he was going to get spooked and, and just disappear. But Trent did the opposite. When the investigators reached him, he told them it was his face that was all over the news, that he had received hundreds of messages on social media, death threats even, and that, yes, it was he who had stripped down and plunged into that pool. Then, Josh recalls, he asked them, unprompted, if they looked into his criminal history. Because I know I'm not supposed to be around guns. I'm a prior convicted felon. I know I shouldn't have had a gun. Turns out Trent's record, not so squeaky clean. As someone previously convicted of a felony, he was prohibited from owning or possessing a firearm. For me, what this tells me about Trent Sargent is he was trying to get ahead of it. He knew he screwed up. You know, this is a person who had struggled with addiction for a lot of his teenage and early adult years. Um, But since then, he was really trying to clean up his life. He had a young son who, at the time of this trespass, was only one month old. So I think, you know, he was was trying to apologize and, and maybe he thought that that meant that he wouldn't be penalized quite as hard. Right after Memorial Day, Trent Sargent turned himself in to the authorities. He later admitted to knowing about the pupfish and their status, and he insisted that he didn't mean to, to hurt them and that it really was really just this like momentary lapse of judgment. He, he was drunk. It was a mistake. In the end... Trent and his buddies could not escape the long arm of the Endangered Species Act. All three men involved in the drunken spree pled guilty to violating the ESA and to destruction of government property. Trent alone, to felon in possession of a firearm. The case never went to trial. Drunk guys one and two, Stephen Schrinkendorf and Edgar Reyes, were stuck with fines and 12 months of probation. But the consequences for drunk guy number three, Trent Sargent, the skinny dipper, the guy who tried on the pupfish habitat and fired the shotgun, were more severe. More than two years after the break-in, a U.S. district judge slapped Trent with almost $14,000 in restitution, banned him from entering public lands for life. And here's the real kicker, prison. For the Endangered Species Act violation, he was sentenced to nine months in custody. Josh Van again. For felon in possession of a firearm. One year and one day. Destruction of government property. One year and one day. Trent was to serve out his sentences concurrently at the Los Angeles Metropolitan Detention Center, meaning... He was in custody for a total of one year and one day. Page never got to ask Trent how he felt about his sentence because he declined to be interviewed. I also had no luck reaching him. But after the sentencing in 2018, she did visit with his parents at their home in Indian Springs, Nevada, a home filled with hunting trophies and pictures of family, including one of Trent, age 12, showing off the first fish he ever caught. I was really surprised to find out that, you know, not only did Trent kind of vaguely know about the pupfish and know that they were endangered species, he had actually learned a lot about them. This is a place that he went like on field trips. Uh, 
you know, his family is a hunting family, but it comes from this place of, you know, stewardship and deep, deep respect of the natural world. And so his family was kind of horrified that this had happened. They told her Trent was horrified too, and that he was willing to take full responsibility for his actions. Still, the fact that their son was in prison meant that he wasn't around to raise his own young son or go hunting with his father. Now it was Trent who had gone missing from the Sargent family. One thing that they told me when I was interviewing them is, you know, like, we understand that these protections exist for a reason. We agree with that. We, like, fully accept that. And, like, we're deeply sorry for what happens. But, you know, if someone ran over a cat... Are they going to stop to make sure it's alive? No, probably not. Um, They're just going to keep driving. But here, you know, like Trent kills a single fish and even, you know, completely unintentionally and he's serving prison time for it. So it's a difficult thing to accept. They never once described it as unfair, but there is definitely this sense of like, wow, wow. That is like a severe punishment for the the death of a, a tiny fish. Of course, not everyone saw it that way. Many in the conservation community thought these guys got what they had coming. If their actions didn't have serious consequences, what would discourage other people from running amok and maybe sending an innocent species into oblivion? And as far as the authorities involved were concerned, it was a big win. What we get out of this case is education the pupfish and their environment and how vulnerable they are has been highlighted. Um, I don't think anybody is going to look at this and say, oh, he got off with with nothing. A year of, of your life is significant. I can tell you that the, the Park Service, um, I feel as an agency, is, is satisfied with the outcome of the case. Almost six years have passed since the Malibu rum-fueled trespass and vandalism of Devil's Hole. Since then, it sounds like Trent Sargent's life has changed for the better. His father told me, in a very brief and rather tense phone call, that his son did his time, paid his dues. He's out of prison now, off parole, has a new job, is about to get married. But mostly his dad said, it's time for the rest of the world to let this go and move on. The Sargent family certainly has. As for Devil's Hole, the National Park Service has only fortified the site further, beefed up the barbed wire fencing, installed better security cameras, built an observation deck a good 80 feet away from the pool. There's not much more we can do. I mean, we have a fence with barbed wire on it. We have this observation tunnel. I mean, we don't want to turn it into a total prison. Park aquatic ecologist Kevin Wilson again. But we, I mean, it's unfortunate. I'd love to, to have it more accessible, but it's a balance between conservation, preservation, and keeping people from doing stupid stuff. The Devil's Hole pupfish did manage to survive the momentary shock to their fragile system caused by one careless human. But all of this added protection may not be enough to save them from a bigger, more complicated threat caused by humankind, the climate crisis. As temperatures in the aquifer continue to rise, they have nowhere else to go. 
what's the future? Yeah, what's their outlook? What's what in your crystal ball? Right, my crystal ball. It's you know by the end of this by the end of the century, if we still have the devil's hole pupfish in the wild, I I would be surprised. No one knows for sure what the 21st century has in store for this tiny yet resilient endangered species. But in 2020, the U.S. Board of Geographic Names voted unanimously to call a previously unnamed 4,300-foot mountain in Nevada, right outside of Devil's Hole, Pupfish Peak. And, you know, something that they said at the time of designating this is that it should serve as this reminder to people of the tenacity of these fish. So I really love to think of the Devil's Hole pupfish as, you know, being mighty as a mountain. For now, Paige is continuing to root for the pupfish, crossing her fingers that every count of their population is a little higher than the last. This week's episode of Last Scene was written, reported, and produced by me, Nora Sachs, your host and curator of this season. And it was based on Paige Blankenbuehler's feature in High Country News called How a Tiny Endangered Species Put a Man in Prison. Nick White is our story editor for this series. Mix, sound design, and original music by Paul Vikas. Production help from my WBUR podcast teammates, Dean Russell, Amory Sievertson, Matt Reed, Quincy Walters, Kristen Torres, and Sophie Codner. Fact-checking by Mira Rahman. Ben Brock-Johnson is our executive producer. Big thanks to Paige Blankenbuehler, Kevin Wilson, Ranger Josh Van, Detective Morgan Dillon, the National Park Service, and the Nye County Sheriff's Office. To find out more about this story and see show notes, go to our website, wbur.org slash last scene. Follow us on Twitter at last scene podcast and pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing, just drop us a line at lastseenwbur at gmail.com. Next up in the series, a story about one man who broke his own silence, and in doing so, broke an entire country's silence about those disappeared during the Spanish Civil War. That is why it's necessary to make noise, so that memory wakes up after so many years of being asleep. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week.